Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. She was tear gassed and beaten. Images of thousands desperate to escape Taliban oppression filled our news feeds. More than 80,000 Afghans made it to America. But the story didn't end there. It was very cold. There was no power, no heat. Who would help our newest neighbors? I'm Andrea Smartin. In Stranger Becomes Neighbor, you'll hear the stories of some remarkable refugees who left their homes and their dreams behind only to start over from zero. Their only possession was three blankets. And you'll meet Americans who stepped up to help them. You want me to come when you deliver your baby. What can one person do in the face of an international disaster decades in the making? That's Stranger Becomes Neighbor. Find us at kslpodcast.com, follow us on Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen. Hey, welcome to Project Recovery, a podcast about addiction. More importantly, it's about recovery. I'm Casey Scott, and that is Dr. Matt Woolley, a clinical psychologist. I say that just so people know. It gives us credibility uh, of, you know, that you're the brains and I'm the beauty of the show. You're definitely the beauty. Casey. Maybe the brawn. Brawn and beauty. Ooh, double got, B. You got the curls. I love it. Curls get the girls. Right. That's what they say. Hey, so in recovery, there's this term, uh, and you'll hear it thrown around all the time. And it's called triggers. And mm-hmm. it probably has something to do in your world as well. Uh, yeah, it's definitely a term we use in mental health, especially in, uh, you know, PTSD, trauma work. Yeah. So for those who don't know, what is a trigger? So a trigger is kind of what it sounds like. It's an event or an experience that triggers or is it like a catalyst to an, a strong feeling you might have. So in the world of PTSD or trauma, uh, if you heard something, saw something, had a conversation with somebody, and it triggered an anxiety response, caused you to feel like you're having that trauma response. In the world of addiction, uh, recovery, and and sobriety, it might be that you're doing great, you're not thinking about drinking, and all of a sudden a commercial comes on TV, or you drive by a certain place, and boom, you get triggered. You feel that need or that you know taste in your mouth, that uh, thought about using again. Guess where I moved last week? Um, to Trigger YMCA. Town. To Trigger Town. Trigger Town. Trigger Town. I was the only resident uh, of Trigger Town last week. So here, just to let you know. I don't how, know what that is. So my week was nothing but triggers last week. Okay. Um, this is good because we don't really talk about your triggers very often. I had family member in and out of ER in the hospital. Oh. Everybody's okay. Okay. Um, but multiple visits to the ER. Oh, Multiple man. stays in the hospital. For, for family members, for not, family not member, for you. Not for me, for a family okay. member. Uh, my older brother, mother-in-law, passed away. Oh, that's too I'm sorry to hear that. So I had a funeral. Mm-hmm. I had a DJ, a wedding. I had a graduation. Mm-hmm. My oldest daughter broke up with her boyfriend. Oh. I mean, th- I mean, it was just like everything that could be piled on at once came flooding down last week it's true that sometimes when it rains it pours like everything happens and why i say it's trigger normally i could get through any of those things with a little help of my friend alcohol it made everything doable in my head at the time i thought it made it doable yeah i mean let's be honest that's a big reason that people drink yeah or smoke and do those sorts of things is because when the stress is on the stress is high when the emotion is big like with 
you know, somebody's sick, somebody passes away, going to a funeral, um, or when the, the the emotions are high and positive, like if it's, you know, like you said, maybe it's a party or DJ in a wedding, that kind of stuff. And I'm knee deep in a remodel still. Right. I mean, so all these, and so you'll see it on TV programs, you'll see it on movies, you'll hear it in everyday life. It's like, I just can't wait home to, to get a drink, to take the edge off the day. You know what I mean? Just to make yeah, everything a little a lot more of... palatable. And, and in the beginning, that's how it's sold to you. This is a friend. This is an aid. This is going to help you get through whatever it is. It becomes associated with relaxing and de-stressing. It also becomes associated with partying and relaxing and having fun. I mean, yeah, all those big things. And so all those things happened in one week. And so uh, last Sunday, I'm driving with my girlfriend, the lovely Leslie. And she goes, hey, how you doing? And I go, I, th- I, think, I'm, I think I'm doing okay. She goes, you are. She goes, I'm surprised how well you are handling this week. And, and I said, thank you very much. Uh, you know, I, I, I really didn't think about it all that much. And to be honest with you, I didn't feel triggered to go Get so describe your trigger for for the listeners, like because for some people they would tell us they would say you have toenail polish on. Huh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, that was distracting. Yeah, to me. All right, so back on track. Uh, people would say you know like they get that taste in their mouth or they you know they feel like like the, that draw like I just you know. I'd like to have that drink. They, so they think it, about going to their favorite place. I'll break it down the way old Casey would have handled any one of those situations last week. Okay. Family member in the ER. We all show up, make sure everything's okay, hopefully get the news that it is. And then we'd go somewhere, have some cocktails, have some drinks, and talk about the event. Mm-hmm. And see what we could do to help, see what we could do to fix, see what we could do different. Mm-hmm. That the, fam- one, the family would The family go. Would. yeah. Okay. Um, so that one. Um, wedding. I usually had beers before the wedding, during the wedding, and after the wedding. And mm-hmm. it just helped me get through the wedding. And mind you, I wasn't supposed to be at the wedding other than just help. But in my mind, were, this, you made, were DJing the yeah, wedding? this okay. made me a better DJ. And I was usually the guy at the party at the wedding going, you guys want one more song? <laughs> we don't have to go home. You know? yeah, Let's right. keep the party going. Right. And people are like, yeah, we got a honeymoon, man. You know, yeah. We've been waiting for a long time for this night. So we yeah. appreciate it, Mr. DJ, but we got to go. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I would have done that. Yeah. Funerals. Not a big fan of death. I don't know anybody that is. Yeah. No. But funerals, usually a couple of beers before the funeral to take the anxiety away and just kind of alleviate some pressure and then after the funeral everybody gets together to drink and share stories and and celebrate one's life i mean that's how it works in my family sure didn't do any of that uh graduation there's usually a graduation party and in fact there was you go there and you go i'm pretty sure this is not for the kids because everyone here is over 21 and they are hammered yeah you know but and and ran into a bunch of friends that i haven't seen in a long time this was a, a a college friend's son who just graduated high school. Oh, okay. Went there and, you know, the drinks were flowing. They had a taiko drummer drumming mm-hmm. and, you know, it was just kind of cool. But normally that would have been a couple of beers on the way down. Yeah. A couple of there. Hey, anybody want shots? Talking people into shots. I know you were good at that. You know, and, and, <laughs> and that. And, and so didn't drink there. Yeah. Uh, the remodel. Champagne you, when the boyfriend and your daughter break up. Well, no, that was bad, bro. <laughs> that was because you think, liked him, huh? Yeah, I do like him. And, How do you and, like your daughter's boyfriend? Because he treats her well, oh, and okay. I think you know I don't want to get into too much of her story, right. but he's going away for the summer. Yeah, 
and she's staying. Oh, he's not going to go sell stuff in some state. Yeah. People at their doors. Yeah. He's, he's doing he's that. that guy, huh? He's going to do that. Because <laughs> right. his older brother did it and seemed to do pretty well at it. Yeah, yeah. And so they broke up for the okay. summer, which I think is responsible. You know what I mean? That is like a temporary breakup? Well, I don't know. I mean, I, I think any breakup can be temporary. Oh, interesting. Okay. Um, you know, so he's going to go do that and she's going to do that, but this is her first big heartbreak. Yeah, it's hard to you see know, your daughter I mean, there was go a lot that, of right? just me on the couch with her, you know. She crying a lot oh, and all yeah. that. And then she got her wisdom teeth out yesterday. So, it's, I mean, this is just this has been, been just a, a big week. A cornucopia of crap. Yeah. That's just been coming at me. So, me and her just watching some Netflix and The Office and her crying and me asking if I can do anything and no and, and all that other stuff. Yeah. And, um, you know, and then the, when you want people or friends to help you remodel the number one tool is alcohol come over i'll buy all the beer and pizza yeah did you still have to buy beer and pizza for no no so you got you talking friends into this huh yeah yeah (laughs) i know she didn't call me well because i i know i don't have those skills you've got a green thumb redo all that (laughs) you've got a green thumb you're more when the gardening comes out maybe i don't know if i'm good at that either but i think i keep you pretty busy dealing with friends and family so (laughs) yeah you, you do help out immensely so but what I'm saying is that this it felt really good to go through all these things, which a year into my sobriety would have been huge triggers. Yeah. And would have been like, whoa. So you're, you're kind of saying it didn't trigger you. No. It, I mean, you, you didn't feel like. I, I was never overwhelmed. Or, or, or smacking your lips. Or, no. no uh, and I was surrounded by alcohol for a good portion of the time. Well, so I was going to ask you, like, specifically, uh, you mentioned, like, going to the ER, family member there. That can be very, very stressful. And I know you have a tight family, and so I'm not surprised everybody would get together afterwards. Did you do that, and did they have cocktails, or did no? They no? didn't. You know what? I, I, and and I don't know if it's, has the culture of drinking changed a little bit in your family? Yes, it, quite a bit. You know, my dad quit when I quit. Right, I know that. You know, and uh, my older brother doesn't drink a, a ton. My little brother is not a real. He's battling his own demons. Uh, okay, and then my mom, uh, she doesn't drink all that often. Uh, so, but we, our parties aren't what they used to be anymore. Why do you think that is? Like, I would like to think they learned something from what I went through, mm-hmm. but I think it's also we're in different stages of our lives now. Uh, you know, I mean, it's yeah, everybody's getting a little older. You know, my parents are in their 70s. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm busy with my three kids and my girlfriend and her two kids and then my jobs and stuff like that. It's just I, I, I just I think, I think we've evolved a little bit. Yeah, I I'll throw out just a thought. And I think that because you didn't force like no alcohol at parties on the family, you, you very clearly your mom offered it. Right. She yeah. said, well, we just won't have beer at the parties anymore. And you said, no, 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 I don't want that. People should be able to do what they want. So that continued. Yeah. Right. But I think that you are a charismatic uh, leader in your family, whether you realize that or not. You have a lot of big personalities in your family, right? Yeah. But I think you're a big leader there. And I and, and because it wasn't forced on them and because you continued to have fun, I think it without anybody thinking about it, I bet any of your family members that might listen to this they would say, well, maybe Matt's not right. But I think I'm right because I think it was subtle. Like, I think it just like the parties kept being fun. The get-togethers kept being enjoyable. We still loved each other. We still and laugh a lot. The the drinking just sort of dropped off to where I know that there's probably still drinking occasionally, but it's not like it used to be. And so maybe being older is part of it. But I also think that culture changes within a family uh, when one person gets sober and is living a life of recovery. 
not just sober and white knuckling it, but living a life of recovery, really killing it, having a great life, being happy. I think it, it sort of rubs off in a positive way on everybody else. Well, I, 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 I appreciate that. Your mom will probably call me and tell me I'm wrong. Oh, she will. <laughs> She's good at that. Uh, but yeah, and so I, what I'm saying is that I do believe in triggers, and I know they yeah. do exist. But I can also sit here and tell you that you can fight them, and you can win them. And if you just keep doing the next right thing, the next time that trigger comes, yeah. you can handle it a little easier, a I would take better. it a, one step further, okay. and I would say let's plan ahead for them. It's not if, but when. Mm-hmm. You are going to be triggered. That's just life, especially if you've had a real addiction that you've struggled and battled hard to get over, and now you're in sobriety and you're trying to live a life of recovery, just know that triggers, that's part of how our uh, our biology, our physiology works. You know, we're, we're accustomed to those, those uh, substances. So they will happen, so you should have a plan. You should talk about your plan, like, you know, with, uh, with your loved ones, your partner, your, your friends and family, people you can reach out to if you have a sponsor, of course, but it's important, I think, to have a plan ahead of time. And then it's easier to keep doing the next right thing. And for people who are listening at home who are not an alcoholic, uh, but know an alcoholic and go, well, that just seems crazy the way Casey described how he dealt with problems in his life. Substitute alcohol for food. Oh, yeah. And a diet. And tell me you don't have triggers. Uh, try, you know what I mean? about the drive through at these soda places? But try being on a diet. Yeah, yeah. And going through all those things. Yeah, yeah. That's And not go grab you some French fries or ice cream or, yeah. So, there, people, so everybody has their caffeine, their food, or the numbing out neurologically, like like the Netflix and, and oversleeping. Bumble. I mean, okay, Bumble. But whatever it is, uh, he's looking at Josh. Whatever it is, uh, people, we all have our things we use to get through the tough times. Yeah. And hopefully most of what we use is not that detrimental, but... If you're honest with yourself, it, it can be. I, I agree 100%. Hey, I'm excited for today. Uh, we've got a guest in studio. His name is Riley. Now, Riley, I forgot your last name. I'm sorry. Loosemore. Loosemore. And uh, Riley's been sober about five years, and we're going to hear Riley's story coming up next right here on Project Recovery. I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. In October of 1985, a woman named Cherie Warren left work at a busy Salt Lake City office. To meet her estranged husband at a downtown auto dealership. She never made it home. Cherie's car surfaced weeks later in Las Vegas. In the parking lot of a hotel casino. No one knows how it got there. Strange. It was strange. Both Cherie's estranged husband and her boyfriend raised suspicion for investigators. I kind of thought that he might have done something. But no arrests were ever made. In Cold Season 3, we dig into double lives, make new connections in the case, and examine the difficulty raised by reasonable doubt. We want answers just as much as anyone else. They have creeps like that now, too, so nothing's changed. That's the new Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie. Now available anywhere you get your podcasts. Hey, welcome back to Project Recovery. Casey Scott, Dr. Matt Woolley. Our guest today is Riley Loosemore. How are you, man? Good. Uh, I've been clean off of meth and alcohol for five years. Yep. Where does the story of Riley Loosemore begin? So I was born in Ogden, and uh, 
when I was real young, my mom and dad moved us to San Diego, and I grew up in San Diego. Um, in the second grade, my dad took me to school, and he wrote Sue on the back of my shirt and sent me into class. And so everybody called me Sue all day. And uh, I didn't know anything about the Johnny Cash song, but I went home that night, and uh, my big sister and my mom were crying in the corner, and I ran through the house, and I realized all my dad's stuff was gone, and he was gone. So he left us, and then my mom decided to move to Morgan. We had family up in Morgan. Whoa, so, whoa, 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 wait. I, I, so why would he write Sue? I mean, a boy named Sue. I get yeah, that part of it. That's why. And he was trying to teach you a, a lesson? Because I guess you? I guess he was waiting for me to come back later in life to beat him up in a bar somewhere or something like the song did you no <laughs> uh, and then he just he just irish exited and yep, just left just the house left, just gone all his stuff was gone i realized his closet everything in his closet was gone that's pretty traumatic yeah. for a boy named sue yep that's right right <laughs> yep and so what you, was your relationship like with your dad before that um it gets pretty deep, really. It was uh, very abusive, and um, when when it all came out, um, he like basically disowned me anyway. He didn't want nothing to do with me. I had no more no more attention from him or anything. Mm. So I was just kind of shunned anyway. And then I guess he finally decided to leave. I mean, we rebuild our relationship later in life, like you know, when I was in my twenties and stuff, and you'd show up here and there. But when you were young, did your dad struggle with substance abuse? Yeah, he's a bad alcoholic, bad alcoholic. So, yeah. So, so anyway, we moved from, and I came, became a diehard Charger fan. I see that you represent, got the hat, got right. the, yeah, all yep. the swag. So from San Diego in about fifth grade, we decided to move to Morgan. Morgan, Utah. Morgan, Utah. Right. A little small community yep, nestled yep. right there. And as we were talking off air... Uh, it turns out you and I were at high school at the same time. Yeah. You're a couple years older yep. than I am, yep. but of course I knew all your buddies and, uh, and I wish I'd have thought to bring, uh, the yearbook. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Could show some nice pictures of us. Yeah. Well, I made it till I was 14. So I still, I went through Morgan middle school Yep. and I got up to the freshman year and then my sister moved from California when she was 18, 19. And she brought one of her friends with her. She had gotten pregnant in California, and they got better Medicaid here or whatever. And so she came here to have the baby. And she brought her, you know, cute little friend with her. And I was 14, so I introduced myself to her and got to know her. And that's when we decided to run away to California, back to California together at 14. That's when I dyed my hair and put an earring in and started smoking weed and doing cocaine and drinking and smoking cigarettes and all at the age of 14 mm, i was a i was a big boy now <laughs> and you wow you moved back to california mm. how long did you stay in california for about four months and uh she decided she didn't want to be with a 14 year old kid anymore plus my mom had gone crazy and put you know wanted posters everywhere missing posters everywhere so you had just left and not told your mom where yeah, you were. Yeah, well, I wrote her a bunch of letters, mm. and then I had they had a friend that was driving to Florida, so they dropped off a bunch of letters on the way to Florida, so thinking I was on the East Coast. Oh. So you put some thought into this. Yeah, oh, yeah, we planned it, and, and that's when I started playing guitar and thinking I was a big boy and, you know, doing drugs and partying. And Now, know. prior to that, at 14, so 
So you fall in love with this girl, and, and I can't blame you for that. That's hard when you're 14. Uh, but prior to that, had you already started drinking or smoking weed or anything? So it was it was that relationship uh, that just kind of made you crazy for love and, and introduced yeah. you to drugs. Yeah, I was kind of on track for for being a Mormon missionary type deal, but, but up to that point, you know, I, mean, I was going to the LDS church and and I mean, I was still troublemaker a little bit, you know what I mean? But, you know, because you know, my friends and everything, but as far as my family was concerned at that time, they wanted me to be, you know, Mormon and be a missionary. And um, my family is my great, my grandmommy, her grandpa is Joseph F. Smith. So, so prophet, that, was, that was the president plan. of the church. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, you come uh, from great lineage. That can be hard to live up to, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and so, and I was just in love with this girl, right? I didn't know what love was or whatever, but, you know, she... Well, in all in all fairness, I think when we're 14, we're in lust. Yeah, right. But, but it happens to everybody, and it can make you yeah. think you know more than you know and, yep. and that you can do more than you can do, and it sounds like you decided, let's uh, head back to California with her. Yeah. And then after she had disappeared and kind of left on the streets of California, I called my big brothers and... And uh, they kind of talked my mom into letting, you know, I got came home and surprised my mom. And I got talked into being put in the behavioral health unit up at the old St. Benedict's in, in Ogden. In Ogden, yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. so I, that was my first time. Washington being, Terrace, yep, I think. Yep. Yeah, roughly. And my mom moved from Morgan down to Washington Terrace. We closer to me while I was locked up in the behavioral health unit. And then when I got out of there, we just moved to the terrace and I started going to Bonneville High. So, what was the thought process behind the behavioral unit? Uh, just because we, they just wanted to see what was going on with yeah, you. Yeah, they, you know, here I, here's a fourteen year old kid. Yeah, that was kind of back in back then. I mean, it's not a whole lot different than it is now. I think we do a much better job of assessment and helping teens get to where they need to be, and the programs are much more well designed and uh, and frankly helpful than they were back then. But back in those days, most of the programs were kind of. There were private programs, but a lot were just in the hospital. And uh, to be honest, it was a lot of sort of housing a kid and not doing a whole lot for them. But I don't know, what was your experience like as a teen in the behavioral health unit? Well, it was was different because, you know, back then you just kind of sat around and they let you smoke. Even at 14, they let you smoke there. Well, it's Ogden. Yeah, and you sit (laughs) sit around in your pajamas all day and... Watch TV, yeah, go to group. Got a group, and you got, you know, my first experience with a, a person, a man that dressed like a lady, (laughs) and so you know, they was trying to fix him too, and so it was a behavioral health unit. So I was in there, got used to that, and got out and went to. uh, My mom moved down to Valley West Apartments, and and I went to Bonneville High School, and I became part of the parking lot crew. You know, you wear the leather jacket or the denim jacket and and uh some smoking. heavy metal band on yeah, the back yep yep you know metallica or whatever iron maiden hacky yeah, sack plays was hacky big sack. for me yeah yeah so Plain yeah time. so you got into uh the parking lot crew yep um and did, were you starting to do drugs again or yeah you- smoking weed and drinking getting in trouble got caught stealing got put back in the behavioral health unit um got back out and then when I was about 15, um, I decided I didn't want to go to school anymore. So I was a sophomore going into a junior, and I dropped out. 
talked my mom into letting me move in with my older brothers and they were 10 years older than me and in a band and long hair and rockers and and uh so i moved into my big brother's house and i thought i got a job at the ogden golf and country club as a dishwasher and i went and got two bottles two fists of vodka and i was going to match my big brother shot for shot and the next thing I remember, I'm in the hospital getting my stomach pumped because I overdosed on vodka. Back into treatment, you know what I mean? That's when they alcohol put me, poisoning. Yeah, yeah. So that's a lot of vodka for anybody, let alone a 15 year old boy. Yeah. So and I just and then you know that was my first experience with putting charcoal down you and making you throw it all up. And, <laughs> yeah, I've talked, yeah, I've talked to so many kids, so they're just, that is a miserable but necessary mm-hmm. yeah. sometimes to save a kid's life. So you're living with your older brother. Mm-hmm. Um, well, at this point, I uh, my mom had decided to um, put me in the Day Spring Treatment Center mm-hmm. there at McKay Yeah. And uh, they had an adolescent program there. So I went there, and, uh, you know, that's my first experience with AA. Um, in recovery and I did real good I was doing real good I was got out of the treatment for six weeks of treatment and I met a girl um, we got real close we, we thought we were going to be grown ups ended up getting her pregnant um, at what 16 I guess and uh, had had my son Trevor he was he was born and you know here I am 16 years old just Got this baby boy. I got a job as a dishwasher at JB's and Roy. We got our own apartment. She got pregnant again. And, uh, you know, I was doing all right. I was still drinking and smoking weed a little bit, but I was trying to be a grown-up at, you know, this point in 17. We ended up getting married. Um, my son Casey was born, beautiful boy, and and uh, it seemed just like a couple weeks later that she got pregnant again. Wow. And I'm like... And I, I'll admit, I folded on that pressure of having three kids coming. Had oh, I kids. can't even imagine. Can you so imagine that? Three case? kids yeah. under the age of 19. Mm-hmm. I mean, wow. That's a lot. Yeah. So I ended up doing acid and um, getting fired from my job at JB's. I I went crazy, and they ended up letting me go. And uh, she divorced. We got divorced. And I moved up to Spokane, Washington, and then I was only there a couple of weeks with an old friend of mine. And I got a call that um, my ex-wife, my wife Stacy, went into hemorrhaging. She had been lifelighted to the University of Utah, and it was taking my son, my baby boy. So I raced back down and get on Greyhound bus, raced back down here, raced to the University of Utah Hospital. And he was born. He was two pounds, two ounces. He could fit in oh, the palm of my hand. Goodness. You know, my baby boy, right? And so I stayed here, and I moved in with my mom. I got a job at Village Inn, um, cooking, trying to, you know, be a dad the best I can. But I'm drinking and partying. I ended up getting an apartment with some guys from work, and it just turned into a big party house, jungle juice night every night, you know what I mean? And working at Village Inn as a cook. And, and I met this girl, this other girl, Hannah, and she... uh we fell in love and decided to run away to California together. Wait California. a second. <laughs> Part two. Yep. Yep. Deja vu. And so we go there and we decide, you know, to come back and 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 she got pregnant. How old are you this time? Twenty, twenty one. So, 
you know, and, and uh, she gets pregnant. I get a job at the uh, Channel 20 television station as a technical director at night, and you guys probably know what a technical director is. You're basically the guy that pushes the button for the infomercial and then pushed the button 38, 28 minutes later for the commercial again. And mm-hmm. That's all I did all night and got introduced to crystal meth. Oh. And I was like, what? Before we find out about crystal meth, I just need you to, you know what causes babies, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I just want to make, make sure you know yeah. this because here you are. He's expert. Yeah, you're 21 <laughs> and you've got four kids. Yeah. Yeah, okay. You know, they, yeah. okay. Uh, so you're technical director and you get introduced to crystal meth. Yeah, so I'm staying up all night. You know, I mean, it was cranked back then, and then the real pure crystal meth came into town, and and I got to be able to do that. And I was in a band, and I could stay up forever, and I could work graveyard shifts, and I could do this and that, sell drugs here and there, and do all this. And I was the man, and you know what I mean? I was, it was awesome, right, as far as I was concerned, and stayed up forever, and uh, moved into an a house with my big brother and and Hannah and and my son was born and I had a couple of buddies living there. So this is your fourth son was born. Yeah. Okay. And he was born December second, exactly five years apart from my first son on December second. So they got the same birthday, just five years apart. Four kids in five years. Mm-hmm. Wow. And uh, I was doing math and trying to work and and my roommate, well. Two weeks after he was born, well, about three weeks, I guess, because the day after Christmas, they kicked in my door. Strike Force kicked in my door and came in and raided me and arrested me for a crime that was committed out in Willard. Um, somebody had committed a murder out there, and they had connected me to it, and I got arrested. So, whoa, 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 whoa. okay. Let's you got just, both hands I got, up. I got, a, you got, I got both the, hands up. Tyler, so the door getting kicked in is in California. No, no, no. It's you're back in Utah at yeah. that point. Okay, I, I missed that part. Yeah. And and Willard, just for the listeners know, that's like Willard Bay might be something. It's a recreational uh, reservoir up just north of Ogden. 15 minutes out of Ogden. Yeah. yeah. Okay, and so and you were living in what part of Salt Lake? Salt Lake? No, I was living in Ogden. Ogden. Okay, so yeah. Yeah, not too far away, but a murder right. happened. Yeah. Okay, and they somehow, how did they connect you to that? What was, what was their reasoning for kicking in um, your door? They just kind of connected the dots to some people that had been seen at my house or whatnot because I was selling and being a part of. And sounds like you were kind of feeling. I hate to use this term, but a little bit like a big shot. Yeah. Oh right? yeah. Right. You're, For you're, real. You're, you're just feeling like, yeah. hey, I'm I'm somebody. Yeah. Doing this, doing whatever I want. I'm a little bit of an outlaw. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and so that got you noticed in a bad way because mm-hmm. you're associating with some maybe not so great people. Right. Okay. So strike force kicks in your door. And arrest you for? They arrested me for suspicion of the murder, or murder, or whatever. They just they didn't pin me on it yet. They just arrested me and put me in jail for a seventy-two hour hold. Whoa! And uh, and that usually means, from what I understand, if they don't if they don't make the arrest for the murder at the time, but they do that seventy-two hours, that means they feel confident enough that they can get that in, that information in 20 that they, the evidence can be there so i think they probably felt pretty confident that they could uh, make make, make an arrest. Case, yeah yeah so and back then 70 terror hour hold was monday through friday business hours so it turned into like three weeks <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, 72 hours turns into three weeks at eight hours or just a day, business Monday. hours yeah. yeah that's creative math huh? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, 
So they spent some time trying to build a case, and yeah. And after that, during that time, they realized what was really going on and who did it and whatever. And you didn't do it, nah, no. But they let me out, and I was supposed to testify. They wanted me to testify, so they dropped. Was me that out. part of their agreement? Yeah, well, out, they let like, me out, gave me his in card. Exchange for you know, we're gonna let you out. Don't go nowhere. We're gonna need you later for court. Uh huh. You know, to tell us what you know. Yeah. And I got scared and I ran. I st- I put a backpack on. I picked up my guitar. Hannah had already taken my son and disappeared to California and gone. We're going to find out where he goes after this. You're listening to Project Recovery. So the cops give you a ticket or a card and says, be around. We're going to need you to testify. Yeah. But you were, you were definitely told not to leave town. Yeah, absolutely. So you decided to? Step off my front porch and walk down to the park and sit there. Okay. So, what was your plan after the park? Well, I was just—I didn't know what to do. I didn't know where to go or what to do. Um, I just knew I didn't want to be home, and I wasn't going to testify, and I wasn't going to say anything. I didn't know what to do, and I ended up just walking the streets of Ogden. For how long? Well, four years and eight months, almost five years. <laughs> I think they call Wait. that a walkabout. Did you just say four years and eight months? Mm-hmm. Before four. I got arrested. Again. So you so so you just you just left the house mm-hmm. and chose essentially to be homeless. Mm-hmm. Like you you didn't want you was that out of fear? Like mm-hmm. you were afraid that if they came back and asked you to testify that yeah, they, they wouldn't got, let you go. I got four kids. Think about yeah. I'm not trying to tell nobody. Yeah. So mm-hmm. you you were afraid that you'd be forced to testify. Yeah. What might have happened then? Well. If I would have, uh, my whole life would have probably changed, and it would all have been great and wonderful and fine. And you weren't worried about different. reprisals, people coming after you. If That's you why I, what I was worried about. Oh. That's why I went on the run. Right. You know what I mean? I didn't. Te- I wasn't. You know. And so, I just sunk deeper into the meth. It's easier to get meth on the streets than it is to get money for a burger. You know what I mean? And meth keeps you wide awake. It it makes it so you're not hungry. Yeah. Uh, raises your blood pit. Temperature, so you're not cold. Freezing. Yeah, keeps you going, so you're walking, walking, walking. That's tough. I mean, anybody, uh, most of our listeners, I think, are probably familiar. But if you're not, Northern Utah in the winter is a cold, yeah. desolate. I mean, it is not a place to be outside. So, how do you survive on the streets for four years and eight months? Well, I I became a a creative collector, I guess you'd say, right? A creative collector. <laughs> yeah. So for those that are at home, um, <laughs> how big are you? What do you mean? Like, you're, you're, how tall are you? How much do you weigh? Um, right now, I weigh 340 pounds. Back six then? Feet. Back then, I was 160. And 6'8". Six, six, no, 6. 6. 6 feet. Oh, 6 feet. So you come become a creative collector. we got to ask, what does that mean? That means that I... You know, I've, I just, because if I was going to be, all these people were thinking who I didn't know who I was, whether I was telling on somebody or, you know, all my, my circle of people, Mm -hmm. they didn't know if I was, you know, did the murder or what. I just went on the run. So they were saying I was crazy and all this, and I was going to show them crazy. And that's what I was going to be is crazy. And I was going to be the worst of the worst. And I was going to be higher than you. And I was going to do more drugs than you. And I was going to take your drugs and I was going to take them. And if I went to your house, I meant to do it because they weren't letting me in their house. So I meant to go to their house. And if I was going to your house, I was there for a reason. I was taken. So I was creatively collecting stuff. <laughs> you know what I mean? I wasn't there for just to be your friend. 
So off air, <laughs> I don't know if you can say this, and if we can't, we'll bleep it. But you told me you were buying people's debt. Yeah, so somebody would end up owing somebody money, and I would end up figuring out a way to buy that debt at 50%. And then, so now that person owed me money. That and then, debt was clear. And then you would go collect. I'd go collect. I'd, I'd leave a card. I went by this guy named Jimmy Ray Johnson, and I had a card that had Creative Collective Services, and I left it. didn't have a number on it. If I left it on your door, you knew I was coming back. So this is a business, sort of. You had a business card, and and you were going around basically doing what like these like loan shark type folks do. They're, they'll they'll high interest rate. They'll buy somebody out of their debt, and then that person owes, and then they'll go collect from them. Mm-hmm. But you had a business card. Yeah. That's like a Tarantino film, I think, right there. Uh, <laughs> I just I I had to be that guy. I had a sword. So I had a fan. I had my leather jacket. I had a fanny pack, Harley Davidson fanny pack that had a speaker on it with my guitar. I had a buck knife and a buck knife. I had a buck knife in the laces, a buck knife in the laces here, and I had um, leather strips on the end of those. I had a sword that you took off. Some I took off a guy's wall. Now I don't want to call Ogden Police Department out, but nobody could find you for four four years. Right, he <laughs> was like a Viking. Yeah. Right, and I put a lawnmower rope pulley on the end of that sword. So I could swing it around. Oh, <laughs> and if I showed up at your house, I meant to be there. Oh man. Okay, so <laughs> you finally get arrested. I hate to laugh about yeah. this because it's actually pretty sad that it's scary. Every, you know, you felt like you had to create this scary persona. persona yeah, this the, because you did that come? I my my experience is that often when a person goes to those lengths, they themselves are scared. Full on. Scared of life, scared of walking around the corner. People didn't trust you anymore. Your no, circle of friends thought maybe you were a murderer, yeah. or maybe you were going to rat them out. Yeah, and so you were afraid for your own life. Yeah. So you, instead of withdrawing and going somewhere else, and you became you leaned into it. Yeah, mm-hmm. it was you know Mad Max Thunderdome yeah. in the streets of Ogden. Yeah, and if you had a problem with me, then I if you were looking for me, I was looking for you. Wow. So you That's became aggressive. Doing. That's how you handled even playing. your fear. I wasn't even playing about it. Wow! If you didn't like me, then I don't like you, and would would uh, discuss it in your backyard at three o'clock in the morning. Yeah, <laughs> those are interesting conversations. <laughs> so after four years and eight months, the cops find you. Yeah, I get pulled over. Um, I you had a car? No, I was with somebody. Oh, okay. I learned not to drive, and, um, <laughs> but I finally. Because, it's hard to fit the sword in the <laughs> yeah. back and everything. Yeah, well, it was smaller. It was one of those ones. But anyway, we get pulled over in Clinton. And they get me out of the car, and I finally just give them my name, right? Because I had all these different aliases and stuff. And and to be honest with you, and I told the cops this a long time ago, I just take whenever they would stop me and give me a ticket, um, I'd give them a different name, and I'd change the last digit in my social security number, five two eight eleven ninety nine fifty. Whatever. Yeah, I probably don't want to tell people your social security number. <laughs> no, I didn't. This isn't his first time. <laughs> I was like, hey, I'm pretty sure he's like, I didn't. <laughs> so they arrest you and they finally go, we've been looking for you for four years. But and what eight made months. you give your real name this time versus the, all the, the time? The trial was over. Everything was done. Okay. And I was just done. I was tired. I yeah. seen my kids. I'd. I hadn't seen my kids in forever. I'd do stupid things like go over to my ex-wife's house and and uh, 
rearranged the furniture and stuff before they got home from school so they still knew their dad was around. <laughs> you break in to your ex-wife's house, rearrange the furniture. That's a little creepy. I just wanted my kids to know I was yeah. still around. You probably felt desperate, huh? Very. Yeah. I knew that she was going to call the cops on me if I even showed up there. So you didn't feel like you could show up and see mm-hmm. him, huh? And I was scared. I was scared to let anybody know where they were at. You know what I mean? Didn't know what was happening. And I was just full of fear. You know what I mean? So, you know, it's interesting because during your conversation and your story, um, we've had some laughs and, and all that stuff and you jump in on it. But anytime it gets brought back to your kids, your demeanor changes. It shifts. You sink into your chair a little bit and you can hear the love that you have for your kids. Yeah. You, you know what I mean? I, I And I do the same thing, uh, you know, and, and, and try to make light of something because I don't want you to know how bad I really am hurting. But yeah. you can see when your kids' names get brought up. Uh, you can see the hurt. Yeah. And I love them with all my heart. So that, when I got busted, um, I had an $80,000 bond for me because they had looking for me for years. Mm-hmm. Went to jail. I got a lawyer. My my mom helped me get a lawyer and and they were really cool. The judge was cool. He understood it. He understood that this was all on me and why I ran on the run and everything. He was cool. So he sentenced me to prison diversion, which I still went out to diagnostics or whatever they called it. But then I got put into a six-month treatment program they called the Prison Diversion Program. Yeah. So instead of going into the prison itself, I went to... So he understood yeah. that, that going just to prison, just to cool your heels for years in prison, wasn't going to really help you. That you were a person who needed treatment. treatment. You needed yeah. help and support. And, yeah. and uh, you know, I think it's great that you're willing to talk about the fear part right now because... I think fear really, truly is one of those base emotions that will cause people to do some pretty outrageous, uncharacteristic things. Mm-hmm. Fear is is a powerful force in our life, and it sounds to me like you became the fear to try to protect yourself, but mm-hmm. you finally just got tired of faking it, I guess. Do it anymore. How did the diversion program work out? Good. I met a girl. <laughs> part three <laughs> and we got into the did you guys together. run away to california no okay good no. at least i think we did changed the story yeah oh you had kids okay yeah my daughter macy okay and uh and i was doing good i got a job back at that same jb's restaurant and i was a manager there i was you know on probation i was doing good she she was doing good we got married and and uh I thought I was doing good enough to where I could think maybe you know, maybe I can try a little bit. Maybe I can do just a little bit. So the program helped you get sober. Mm-hmm. But once life started to feel like, hey, everything's working. We got the job. We got the wife. Got the place to live. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden that little worm kind of creeped yeah. back in your brain, didn't you it? You wanted to take the drugs for a test drive again. Yeah. I wanted to go for more, I don't know, just to see if it worked still, I guess. I don't know. I just thought it would be a good idea. I don't know why. It just creeped in my head. Did it work? Well, I I ended up relapsing and uh, kept it from, from her for a minute. She, um, she went into labor, and I walked in to the room, and she knew immediately. She looked at me. She knew I was high, and she was done. She was so mad. And Macy was born and uh, took her home, and she left me with this brand-new five-day-old baby girl. She left you with the baby? Mm-hmm. She's gone. Oh, wow. Gone. Never came back. 
That's pretty and unusual. And I got this baby girl. I don't know what's going on, man. Tripping out with this baby girl, you know what I mean? And I had to take her to my mom's and have my mom help me and and uh, end up quitting my job and just going deeper into the addiction for another few years. And just my mom kind of raised my daughter there for a while because I just went nuts. Went back into Ogden, back into the same behavior, same actions, behaviorisms, same circles, same stuff. Um, back on meth? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Full on. Back on meth. So that became your drug of choice, it sounds full like. Full on. Yeah. Yeah. I had to drink to come down a little bit so I could calm down. Because I was doing it. I mean, I stayed up for 31 days once. People may not believe me, but that's true. <laughs> you know what I mean? 31 no, days. I, I know it can happen. Yeah. So how does this uh, run and gun situation end? I end up getting busted. I got busted. I had a... I had a standoff with Layton City Police Department at Reams parking lot. I went in there with a sword, with a machete, thinking I'm not hiding it, right? It's not concealed. And by th- and I went into the store, and then by the time I came out, it was like 10 o'clock at night, there was a circle of Layton Police Department, and I'm arguing with them about how this is not a, it's not illegal to have. I'm not having it. <laughs> you know what I mean? I'm not, it's not illegal. And I had forgot that I had a little bit of meth in my pocket, and they caught me with it what was your behavior like in the reams do you think you had done anything to scare the employees or? yeah oh for sure i mean here i am with my leather jacket sweating bullets got a machete just on my shoulder like a bat yeah so you don't blame somebody for calling the cops no absolutely not but you know but I in your mind you thinking. weren't doing anything wrong and uh-huh. i think that's obviously part of the problem when a person's really mm-hmm. high is they're not thinking clearly and they don't yeah. realize the effect they have on others and realize so, what you're doing you know if you'd have been minding your p's and q's maybe they wouldn't have called the cops well yeah yeah oh yeah i was standing in the candy aisle and I look over and there's this little lady shaking calling on her phone and i'm like i should probably get out of here <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so the cops arrest you find meth on you uh they take you to jail um, do you end up going to prison or jail? no they put me in the rsat program what's that residential substance abuse treatment center in the county jail okay so I did that. Right? So you're sentenced to a year, and then when you complete the RSAT program, the treatment center in jail, they'll let you out early, but you have to wait to get put into the treatment center part of it. Still in jail, and you're still in jail for the program. It's like an in-house treatment yeah. opportunity. So I did that. How did this one work? I got out, and I did real good. Um, and then I had um, relapsed, and uh, the judge sentenced me. I came back, and I, the judge sentenced me to prison. Um, but then he, he saw me that I successfully completed the prison diversion program before, so he put me in there again. And that's where I met Michelle. <laughs> right? Another girl. <laughs> My third <laughs> wife. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I'm sensing a pattern. <laughs> it seems to be. Yeah. Yeah. And so uh, you marry this one. Yeah. We got we found Christ together. We got sober together. Um, was doing everything great together. She had three kids, and I have my five. You know what I mean. So, um, we're doing good. We're living life. I'm going to church. We got baptized together. We're living the Ozzy and Harriet lifestyle. And again, a year into it, we think we can have a couple of drinks. You know what I mean. Go buy a bottle, and we prayed over the bottle. 
Dear Lord, just bless us with this bottle and let us be a happy family as we drink this bottle in joyful times. <laughs> you know what I mean? Now, in a similar <laughs> mind, looking back upon that, I mean, because I can see you doing that. And being an addict myself, I can understand the reasoning and the thought process that mm-hmm. goes into that. But now, five years sober, yeah. looking back, yeah, just, I mean, it, that's the obsession and the obscenity of this disease. I mean, it really is yeah. just oh. so mind-altering crazy that you think yeah. that th- that was a good idea. Yeah. Here, all you had to do was stay away from it, and mm-hmm. you had everything you wanted. Yeah. Justified. Try to ju- justifying it. Or rationalize it or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. So you start drinking, and does that go down quick? Yeah. So eventually we start doing meth again mm-hmm. and just spent the next three years just hammering it both of you yeah yeah kids got taken the kids don't want us nothing done they did the state done. step in and take the no. kids no just family members yeah. yeah yeah macy's gone back to mom's and we just went down this hole and then i ended up ended up getting arrested and going to jail for a trespassing charge and she Went to a homeless shelter. We lost our house. Um, and I got out, and I just I just never went back, right? I mean, we tried a couple of times. I went to Bible college at one time in Chicago to get sober. And I lasted about seven months and came back and couldn't stop drinking, started drinking heavily. This is when I really became a hard alcoholic instead of meth. Just full-on drinking heavily. Bouncing from house to house, staying at my mom's house, trying to repair my my relationship with my wife, and that wasn't working, and I couldn't stop drinking, and and so we ended up getting, and then I just went downhill. I still was like, I got a job at a um, fishing lodge up in Alaska and became a chef up there um, for a couple of years, a couple of seasons. Um, come back live with my mom, and then. Um, I just kind of fell into the hole again and thought I could start doing meth again and uh, ended up getting busted for a half ounce and going to jail for a year. Macy's gone. My wife's divorced me. I don't got nothing. And uh, I decided I was going to start doing meth, and I got out of jail. I did pretty good for oh, I got off paper, went back to Alaska, came back, and here we are again. I thought I could, you know, I was a year sober. Thought I could do it again. And then my my mom died. And uh, I just, I don't know, it kind of is all a blur after that, right? And and my family came down and took Macy and said, Macy's coming up with us to Seattle. And if you want to go to the ACT, um, get clean, you can move up to Seattle. And so, and start a new life. Right, Macy's what, thirteen, fourteen, time now, and so you know my boys are older. One boy's in the Marines, and uh, they're doing pretty good. My other son's a chef, and they're doing good. And they're just over their dad's addiction, alcoholism deal. They just keep me at arm length from there on out. And uh, so Macy, and it's just me and Macy. She goes up to, uh, she's going to kill me probably. For, <laughs> but she goes up to Seattle and then I go through the ACT and I sell everything and I get up there and uh, they say, okay, well, you're going to sign your total rights away from her because my mom had guardianship when she died. It fell into, it was like in lieu. Yeah. And uh, 
And I'm like, no, nah, we'll, we'll ask her. And she comes down. And I'm like, Macy, you, you want to you do this? She's like, no, I want to stay with my daddy. And I'm like, okay, well, you can get out. You're not going to stay here. So they kicked us out, and we ended up being homeless up there in Seattle for a little bit and well, a couple nights, and we ended up down in Vancouver, Washington, and we were going to make a go of it. And I was sober still, got a motel. I had a friend, um, Matt, got us a motel up there. I got a job up there, got her into school up there. We were taking the bus every day, dropping her off at school, then I'd go to work, and then I'd pick her up. We was going to make a go of it. You know what I mean? We're, we're going to do this, me and Macy against the world. And then one day I picked her up from school. She's just sitting out front of the school and she's like, Daddy, we're going to be homeless. Can we be homeless at home? <laughs> so that like next night I was on the Greyhound bus and we came home. Got a motel at the at the uh, Royal Inn in Roy. Um, got down to my last that's still sober, still struggling. Um, my girlfriend just recently died. She died overdosed and uh dealt with that staying sober i'm not doing this i'm gonna do good went to got down to the very last day in my motel and i was like god i i'm trying here i'm gonna lose macy they're gonna come just take her now and uh and i my son calls and says hey dad we got somebody i want you to meet but you gotta get out here to layton so i got on the bus went to layton couldn't find a job anyway. Anyway, I tried, tried because I burned every bridge and felon. I couldn't get an apartment because I'm felon. Anyway, my son's like, hey, I need you to meet this lady. This lady's like, hey, we're getting a divorce from my husband. I'm moving out to my grandma's. Do you want to stay in our house? And we can just pay $400 a month until we sell the house. And I understand you need a place to stay. Fifteen minutes later after that, an old boss of mine that I had burned the bridge on called me and says, hey, Riley, I really need a cook. And then 15 minutes later after that, Somebody from Oregon calls and says, hey, we got a car in our driveway, bro. If you want to use it, go ahead and use it, you know. And uh, 15 minutes later after that, somebody had put, somebody put Macy's name in the Utah Military Academy Scholarship Program, and they picked her. Oh, wow. That's right? a very fortuitous day. Yeah. yeah All one afternoon. Couldn't That's believe it. amazing. Right? And it was just doing the next right thing, right, at that time. And I did really good, man. We did good. She was at Utah Military Academy. She changed her whole life, her attitude. You know, we didn't have to worry about clothes because it was all the same clothes. And they provided all the funding. And and I was working. And I ended up getting a nicer apartment um, and a better job cooking. And uh, doing good. And I was kitchen manager. was doing good. I got me a new car. And then... I was sober 18 months, and on Christmas Eve, I went to a bro's house, and I was like, hey, what's going on? Macy's happy. She's, you know, junior in school, was doing great. And he handed me a loaded syringe and said, well, you remember what this is? Kunk. Hmm. Handed me a bunch, bunch of dope and said, here, Merry Christmas. So I made it through Christmas Day. I don't know, I was high, but could have been a couple of days later, but... Macy came in and caught me in the in the washroom, the washroom dryer room, at three o'clock in the morning, with tie on my arm, trying to put a needle in my arm, and that blood curdling scream that she let out. I just couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe that just happened after everything I did. She called my brother. 
she had left, gone, and I just sunk into a deeper hole after that. I just, that's it. I give up. I quit. I'm going to be a drug addict junkie for the rest of my life. I don't care. I had my car. However long, a year later, they finally repoed my car. Three o'clock in the morning, I'm chasing it down the street, and everything I had left was in my car. I had the clothes on my back. I remember sitting down in the middle of the street, realizing I have nothing. I literally have nothing now. I don't have no clothes. I don't have no money. I don't have no cigarettes. I don't have my kids. I don't have nothing. And I just walked the streets of Ogden. Again, just walked the streets. I lived behind a dumpster down behind the Lantern House and down by the river, homeless. I went from one house as best I could to another house for I don't even know how long, months and months. Just didn't care anymore. I had succumbed to the fact that I was going to be a junkie, miserable, alcoholic bum for the rest of my life until I died. I didn't care anymore. So... But your story doesn't end there. Nope. <laughs> or you wouldn't be here. Nope. So, nope. But, but let's feel this. I mean, that's such, you know, you had really hung in there uh, through some pretty tough times in Washington and coming back to Utah. You know, your mom had passed and your girlfriend had passed, and yet you were still hanging on. And it seems like there, and then, and then you have that day. The miracle day, whatever you want to call it, where everything just came together and things are going so well. But it was that loss of that relationship with your daughter that really made you feel it was hopeless, over. wasn't it? It was over after that. My kids, my boys didn't want nothing to do with me. They were done. My son, my oldest son, done. And uh, just couldn't do it anymore. And sitting there in the street feeling like you have nothing. But like Casey said... Something must have eventually happened. So you're back to being homeless again. Yeah. What happened? My oldest daughter, um, I mean, I kind of adopted her from my third marriage from Michelle. She's, but she's my daughter. She calls me dad. And uh, I went to her work. She's working at Jimmy John's and she had just recently got into recovery. And I just asked her, I hadn't showered in a month probably, I haven't taken my boots off in over a month probably. And she's like, dad, you can't be here. You can't be here. I can't, I just want a sandwich. She's like, nope, you got to get out of here. And I started walking down the street, and she chased me down with the giant crocodile tears. And, Dad, just call this number. Just call this number. And it was the number of Valley Camp. And it still took me, I don't know how long, a couple of weeks ago, I was high. But I ended up calling my sister in Layton that I had burned a couple of years before. And I said, listen, I got this number to Valley Camp. I don't really know what to do with it, but I don't got a phone. She's like, if you call Valley Camp every day, because the deal is if you call Valley Camp, you get on the list, you have to call every day to keep interested and let them know that you're still interested. A few days later, and so my sister comes and gets me, gets me a pack of cigarettes, gets me cleaned up, I eat, and I call Valley Camp, and a few days later, they ask me to go to a meeting up there. And so I go up there, and... Just for a meeting on a Saturday night, they got a beautiful bonfire meeting where it's at a podium and bleachers, and it's all outside in the woods. Beautiful. So for those who don't know, Valley Camp is what? It's a men's residential treatment facility, nonprofit, 12-step program. That houses how many uh, patients? 10, 11. 10 or 11. And they call you up for a meeting on a Saturday night, which they, I think they do every Saturday night. Yeah, every Wednesday, Friday, and Saturday night. So you're going up there thinking you're just going to go to a meeting. Yeah. And uh, I just so happened to know the, 
president of the board from years ago, and uh, they kind of corner me at the Burger Shack, and uh, they're like, "Hey, man, you serious about getting clean?" I'm like, I, "I don't know, really. I don't know. I guess." I go, "If you're serious about it, you can stay here from here on out, right now." I'm like, "Yeah, I don't know about all that." They're like, "Really?" And I'm like, "Well, I don't got no money." That's all right. We'll figure it out. I don't even got clothes. The clothes on my back. That's all right. We'll figure it out. You stay here from this moment on. And I was like, all right, I'll try it. So I stayed there, still kicking, you know, stomping feet and kicking dirt and not really wanting to be a part of the program. I wasn't doing anything to really get in trouble, and but I wasn't really participating either. And I got to my 30 days, and it was my 30 day right my 30-day chip they give you a 30-day chip in aa and uh i'm sitting up at the burger shack and i'm feeling just whatever and i look down and there's macy running up the hill and she's giving my giving my 30-day chip so we get up to the podium there's all these people there there's macy there she may have been 10 years old with pigtails again as far as i was concerned She gets up in front of everybody and she says, my daddy thinks I'm mad at him. I just want my daddy to get better. From that moment on, I dedicated my life to recovery. Whatever they told me to do, if I put my head in the toilet 10 times a day and that was going to get me clean and sober, I was doing it. They told me to do the 12 steps, I was doing them. I was doing anything, and I was giving it all 122% effort. I was doing it, whatever it took. And I did. And I dedicated my life to recovery from that moment on. And I got sober. I got clean. I freaking, I did leave because triggers. Mm -hmm. I left for a year out of Ogden and moved up to Wyoming, Evanston. And I came back down for meetings. and, And I wrote a letter to my oldest son as if I was him to me. And I tried, tried to call him, and he would never talk to me. Macy was talking to me, but somewhat, they're still very standoffish. Mm-hmm. I was able to work my way back into their lives a little bit and uh, came back down here. I was about a year sober, and my son Anthony shows up, the one that left at two weeks old, heard, it, heard his dad was sober, and he wanted to get to know who his dad was. And he, I've seen him a couple of times in the past, but nothing was drunk and high but now he wants to hurt his dad so we we ended up getting uh, we get to get to know each other and and we ended up getting a house together and i i was like yeah this got to be more to life than this i was just a cook and i just didn't want to do that and i was kind of wanting to give up and then my daughter Lindsay, she's like why don't you try to be in a peer support i'm like what they ain't gonna hire me i'm a felon junkie wannabe they're like, just try it, Dad. If it's not working this way, just try it. Just try it. And I went and applied. I went and applied at Weaver Human Services. They gave me a shot as a technical person for a new um, treatment center they had going on there. And and I worked there at graveyard shifts. And then they offered me a peer support position full-time. First time I ever had a job with insurance was four years ago with actual insurance and actual paid time off and actual 
and I worked in this treatment center with these guys coming up, up and coming, and I get to be their peer support. I get to hang out with them all day, and I was more comfortable there than I was even in my own house, my son, because I just that's where I've been most of my life, you know, in those kinds of places or on the streets. So I'm with these guys, and I'm just working with them every day, and they're paying me to do it. And then a job came up with Usera, and I went and applied for there. And they gave me a shot. And now that's where I work today. And I still work still work there at Weber, at Stepping Stones, and change, doing the best I can to be with these guys. All day long, I get to talk recovery. And then I ran for the board, board of directors up at Valley Camp. And I got voted on as a director. Oh, that's great. At Valley Camp. And so now I'm working here. I'm working at Sarah as a life coach. Every day I get to sit down with people and talk about goals and how can we help you get sober and what can we do to keep you clean today. Let's talk about what your gratitude list is. Let's talk about how grateful you are for this. What do you like about yourself every day? Let's do this together, man. Let's lift each other up together. And I get to do it every single day, man. And then I get to be a part of Valley Camp where it started for me. My life, like you said, can't even imagine. My baby girl, got all my kids. Yeah. Doesn't get any better than what I'm at today. I'm feeling it. Man. Oh, man. I'm like, whatever you're selling, I'm buying. Because <laughs> this is a happy person. Yes. You feel, I can feel it. Thank I'm, you so much for sharing His happiness is making me happy. It's giving me goosebumps I mean, I, right yeah, now. Like, I'm like, is it the... It's the positivity than, oh, of what you get to do every day. And every who's day. more qualified to be a peer coach than you? Yeah. Certainly not me. That's no. amazing. You you are comfortable with them, and you can yeah. inspire them. I love it. Yeah. So I love it. Before we end this podcast, you see people and you talk recovery all day, every day. Mm-hmm. When you see somebody who says, I'm an alcoholic junkie bum, and that's all I'm ever going to be. What can you say to them to help them change their mind? That's who I used to be. I was that. I was that. I did the same thing. And I'm not that today. And you're not that today. And if you want to get clean, then I can help you get clean. I can show you what I did. All I can do is tell you what I did. Show you my story. And if we can sit down, if you want to sit down for an hour and we'll have a cup of coffee, and I'll do what I just did with you guys. And I'll share my story. I said, let's do this together. I can help you get into treatment. I can help you get into Valley Camp. I'm a board of director there now. I got some pull. You know what I mean? I yeah. Can, uh, and I can work with you on an every single day basis and until we can get this together. You tell me, but how often do you see hope come into the eyes of the people you talk to like that? Because they're every hopeless day. when they say, I'm a bum, I can't ever make it. And then somebody like you can share that life story with them, can offer them solutions, and every day you see hope come into their every face. Every day. Yeah. And hope is such a powerful agent yeah. of change. Yep, and I get to be a small part of it for all uh, these different You're guys. a big part of it. You're a big part yeah. of it. And that's that's what's great. I, I get to work uh, with lots of, uh, you know, fancy, smart people up at the University of Utah uh, with lots of degrees, and, and that's wonderful. I'm not making fun of it. It's great. But you know what? There are so many people that are doing 
such great work because of their experience in life and they're sharing that experience and they're providing support. And I'll be honest, I've never been where you've been and that's okay with me. (laughs) Trust me. But I can't have that same conversation with somebody in a way that you can. And if anybody out there listening thinks that that's a small thing, they're very wrong. That's a very powerful, that's a big thing. It's bigger than Vulnerability is a superpower. Vulnerability and connection. You know, we talk about... Being authentic. Yeah. What do we talk about on this show? The opposite of addiction isn't abstinence. It's connection. And And being able to connect with somebody like you do is, is a powerful tool for change. Yeah. I love it. I love what I do. I can't wait to get to work every day and meet with with people that want to find recovery and find some hope. Let's do that together. I'd love to get to do it every day. And now I get to drive to Valley Camp every night. Um, they invited me for a short time to be a living manager up there, which they've done in 20-plus years probably. Great. Well, I'm inspired by you. Um, I love when he says, let's do that together, because I feel like, well— I want to do it with you. I'm not. I'm not, yeah. I'm not an addict. I want to do it. Yeah. This and, and I know we say this all the time, but right now this has probably been one of my most favorite podcasts Absolutely. we've ever done. Absolutely. We're in six minutes for Riley to actually smile to his producer. But now Josh. the smiles lighten up the room. But you could. But Josh brings up a good point. Once he started talking about recovery. There a light that came on yeah. in his face yep. and the color in his skin and his yep. demeanor and his attitude and his voc- just talking with his hands. It was absolutely like me and you were both just like we were watching Tom Cruise on Top Gun. Yeah. Yeah. Like, this is awesome. <laughs> it is awesome. <laughs> this is awesome. You're yeah. living your best life right now, yep. aren't you, Riley? Yeah. Best. I got an amazing relationship with all my kids. All of them. Got an amazing relationship with their mothers. Oh, that's great. You that know what I mean? I, I just... I mean, it's me and Macy against the world again, and her brothers. Oh. It's awesome. I love it. Riley, thank you very much for stopping by and sharing your story. It is going to be an inspiration to many out there. Dr. Matt, thank you for your insight as always. I love you with all of my heart. In case you forgot, Project Recovery is what? You know what? It's a KSL podcast, Casey. That's right. of this program are for informational purposes only. The program is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician, licensed therapist, or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you've heard on this program. KSL does not recommend or endorse any specific tests, physicians, products, procedures, opinions, or other information that may be mentioned on the program. Reliance on any information provided on the program is solely at your own risk. Two friends taking pictures of the rising full moon on a summer night. Two teenage kids doing what teenage kids do. When a stranger with a gun and a death wish changed everything. It was violent. It was senseless, and I will never understand it. I will never accept it. I'm Amy Donaldson, and unfortunately, we're all too familiar with stories about how violence shatters lives. But what we rarely see is how they are rebuilt. In a new podcast, The Letter, we relive tragedy 
but only so we can hear the rest of the story. The struggle to reclaim lives, the realities of grief, and the possibilities of forgiveness. I believe in miracles. Sometimes I thought, there are no miracles. Yeah, there are, and this is a big one. Follow the letter at theletterpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts.